Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Seven. And I thought I'd move over to Habakkuk first. Um, Habakkuk chapter three says a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet according to the Shignon. Lord, I have heard the report about thee, and I fear. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. And in wrath, remember mercy. This is the only place that this uh, uh, Shigayon is referenced in Scripture. Verse 1 of Psalm 7 says, uh, A Shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. Now, this is a a song, uh, a lament that David is speaking as just frustrated over a situation that's going on. Um, Benjamin is one of the tribes, but specifically the tribe that Saul was from. Saul was the king before David, and there was a group who were Saul's army and Saul's whole side that really did not like that David had become king. And so they accused him of usurping the throne and taking advantage of his friendship with with uh, Nathan Um, and so David really struggled with that he had been ordained to be the king God had put him there and over and over you know his friends told him hey go in and just take Saul out God's already told you you're going to be the king And, and David consistently avoided taking advantage of situations where he could have taken Saul out and gone ahead and taken over the throne because he was trusting the Lord to do the work for him. That he understood that God has a timing for everything and that his timing was not always God's timing and he was okay with that. And so we see David at the beginning here singing this song to the Lord concerning this man who is bringing accusation against him. Um, this this word, uh, shigeon, depending on how you want to pronounce it, I'm not sure. <laughs> so is understood as an emotional crying, a wandering psalm. And... So he is, we're going to see that as, as it progresses, that, that this is an emotional time for David. He's frustrated with the situation that he's in. Um, some think that this is during the time of Absalom's rebellion. Um, I'm, and you can read about that in Second Samuel uh, chapter 15 through 20. But he's got a whole group that are just, don't like him as king. So he says, O oh Lord my God, 
In you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me. David recognizes the safest place is in the will of God. And for us, it's the same truth. You know, when we're anxious about all the situations that are going on around us, the safest place is to abide in the will of God and his purposes for you. God is our refuge. And we have to keep that perspective. He is the one that protects us. He's the one that guards us. Both from physical things, from spiritual things as well. Verse 2 says, Or he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. I think it's interesting that uh, he uses this term, which we can take into the New Testament. There, there are references to the lion. We know Peter 5 says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And David recognizes what's going on in this situation is not just physical. It's not just some people trying to usurp the throne. There is a spiritual battle going on. And he's conscious of it in another realm. And in the same thought, we need to be conscious of all the battles that we're in. That these are spiritual battles. They're not just physical. The adversary seeks someone to devour. And we need to have our tower, our refuge, our shield in Christ. Because that's the only means of salvation. Interesting, Timothy has a similar situation. Um, He's on trial and he says, nobody came to my defense. Nobody came to, to support me when I was on trial. And it says, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so I could fully proclaim the gospel. And he was rescued from the lion's mouth, it says. Now, that probably was a reference to the ruler, but it was also a reference to Satan, that there was an intent to destroy the gospel. And he said, God rescued me. And and that needs to be our, our trust, despite whether other people are coming to our rescue, despite having assurance in anyone else, we have insurance in Christ. Ephesians 6.12 says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. Our battle has very little to do with physical world. We should be wrestling on a totally different plane than the rest of this world. Verse 3, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hand, if I have rewarded evil to my friend or have plundered him who without cause was my adversary, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life down to the ground 
and lay my glory to the dust. David made a point of examining himself. He recognized that there are accusations, and sometimes those accusations are true. Sometimes people have things against us, and and we really need to examine ourselves and say, maybe I did do something wrong. But in David's case, he hadn't. So he says, God, show me if I did something wrong. Reveal it to me. And the reality is the adversary in Revelation, um, it says the adversary is accusing the brethren. We have someone who stands in accusation against us. And sometimes we deserve that accusation because we are not doing what we're called to do, which is be the image of Christ. And yet we have Jesus standing in that courtroom saying, I have paid the price for that. The friend here is probably Nathan. If I've rewarded evil to my friend, they're saying, oh, you you took advantage of that friendship. And multiple times he took it, uh, he had chances to take advantage of Saul. Was, but he didn't. David asked, Lord, vindicate me. First Corinthians says, uh, chapter four, Paul says, I'm conscious of nothing against myself. Yet, am I not by this acquitted? Am I, am I not by this acquitted? But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, don't go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart. Then each man's praise will come from God. David understood that it was God that judged him, not this guy who had a bone to pick with him that was just out to get him. And Paul understood the same thing. He said, you know, all kinds of people pass judgment. And and I have examined myself and and I, I don't I don't find any area that I'm really failing in right now. But I leave that to God. He is truly going to be my final judge, and I recognize that. And I entrust it to him. And with all the people around me, I entrust that same expectation that God will judge those around me. Verse 6, arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the rage of my adversaries. Arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Let the assembly of the people encompass you, and over them return on high. It's interesting that that this assembly, um, this this same statement is is reminiscent of of Moses. You know when uh, they were leaving Mount Sinai, 
they were following this uh, pillar of, of, of the presence of God. And Moses said in Numbers, Rise up, O Lord, arise. Let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate thee flee before you. And then when it came to rest, he said, Return, O Lord, to the myriad of thousands of Israel. It's, it's almost the same thought that God would arouse and protect him. And yet, at the same time, that, that he would reign on high over the, the people. And the reality is, God says he's fixed a day for this anger to come about that God is going to raise himself, arouse himself, and he's appointed a time for judgment. Romans 12 says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And we need to be careful that, that that's not our position. It's God's. We need to call for it. We need to have a heart that recognizes we don't want to be in the midst of the evil around us any longer. It's not fun. It's not pleasant to see evil, to see wickedness, to see the nation's rage. But we know that his time is perfect. And David understood that. He waited on the Lord. It's interesting, this assembly of peoples, uh, the, the word for people was first used um, when Rebecca was, was pregnant. And it said, there are two nations raging inside of you. Jacob, who I loved, and Esau, who I've hated. There are two groups of people in the world, those who are submitted to God and loved by God, and those who, are God, who God is angry with. And David's call here is let the assembly encompass you. Let them come back to recognizing who you are. And over them, return on high. Be their Lord again. Be the God that you were back at creation. Where everybody knew their place as being your created, your creation. And that should be our heart. That the world would come and recognize who God is. And that God would come and reign on the earth. It's interesting, it's the same word that we saw back in Psalms 2, where the people devise a vain thing. The nations devise something that's useless. That should be our prayer, 
these nations who seem to be enraged, this nation that seems to be enraged, that seems to be doing really idiotic things, our desire is that they come to God, that they change their attitude, that they recognize who the real government is. It is a spiritual government. God is on the throne, and he is coming to establish that throne forever. And that should be our prayer, just like in Revelation The spirit and the bride say, come. That should be our prayer. Come, Lord. Rule over. Be God. Let the nations see you as who you are. Verse 8 says, the Lord judges the people. Vindicate me. O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is within me. He's not saying that he's perfect. He's saying... In this situation, I didn't do anything wrong. And yet I'm being accused of something evil. And the reality is that happens to all of us at different times. We can be accused of something just because of somebody else's pride or somebody else's just doesn't like you for whatever reason. David said, vindicate me. Make it right. The Lord judges the people. It's interesting here. It's a different word for people. Uh, Verse 7, it uh, says the assembly of the people. But in verse 8, he judges the people. This word goes all the way back to Babel. What happened at Babel? God came down and he saw the people and he said, this this can't continue. And he scattered the nations. This is the people that we're referring to here. The Lord judges the people. And so David is seeing, is, is recalling God dispersing a group of people who were just in total rebellion against him. And he says, do that, but in the midst of it, vindicate me. Show that what I've done is not wrong, but was your will and your purposes. The idea here is, his prayer is, come and see what's happening against me. And render judgment on my account. Defend my honor. And and there are times when we know we've done the right thing. And we feel just slighted. Because people have treated us just wrong. And it's not our place to change that. It's God's. And he will vindicate in his time. And we need to leave that in his hands and entrust it to him. Verse 9, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. 
For the righteous God tries the hearts of men. Hebrews 4 says the word of God is living and powerful. And it discerns the thoughts and intent of the heart. You know, often that's our desire is that wickedness end and that God establish righteousness. And yet there are times when our thinking is not quite righteous. Sometimes our thinking is wicked. And we need to be able to discern rightly what's going on in our own minds. And we can only do that by being in the word because the word reveals our own thoughts and our own intent. We want to have that heart of God and it's the word that reveals that heart to us and allows us to be in tune with that heart. You know, as we get frustrated with people accusing us of whatever, as we get frustrated with this world that's just raging, we want to have God's heart that, yes, is angry with wickedness, but is patient and gracious and longing for a change. What's exciting is Romans says, not only does he try our hearts, but he knows the mind of the spirit and he intercedes for us. We have one that is interceding for us to change us. As people are being accusatory, there is one who stands in our defense. And so we can be confident in Christ, in doing his will, despite the situations around us. Verse 10, he says, my shield is with God, who saves the upright of heart. It's not just that God is his shield, but it's the idea that he is in line with God. He has aligned his shield, his, you know, his defenses are the defenses of God. His loyalty is with the Lord and his intent is to be on, in the battle, defending the truth. And that should be our intent to be not just on the sidelines, but in the battle. Defending truth. Because we know that God saves those who are upright in heart. As we do what we're called to do, he will vindicate us. Verse 11, God is a righteous judge. And a God who has indignation every day. This is constant. You know, I know we, we all are frustrated with situations around us sometimes, especially with the chaos going on with the rioting and looting and all that. And it's, you know, we look at it and I think, what, what are people thinking? 
How much more does God think the same thing? How much more does he righteously know how ignorant it is? How stupid the world is behaving? He is indignant every day. Another translation just says it flat out. He is angry with the wicked every day. The Lord is not slack in concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. What's more important? The heart of God. He sees us being stupid sometimes. He sees us being wicked sometimes. And yet he's patient. He knows there's repentance. And he's waiting for that. For each of us. There are parts of our lives that we need to repent of. And we need to come to the Lord in. Verse 12, if a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Acts 17, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has promised a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. But the man whom he ordained, he has given assurance of this by raising him from the dead. There is a judgment coming. And being ignorant of God's indignation towards wickedness is not okay anymore. He's calling for repentance now. Second Corinthians says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in this body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. If you know that God is indignant, that God is frustrated, that God is angry, it's your job to persuade men to repent. That's what God's called us to, to be those who go into the world and call men to obedience to God, to repent. John 3 says, Whoever believes on the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. 
it's interesting that in that verse, to believe is to obey. If you believe on God, you have eternal life. Those who do not, does not obey the Son, shall not see life. Which I think is something interesting going on here. It's one thing to believe. It's another thing to obey. We can see life in our experience with God only when we're being obedient. We may believe and have everlasting life, but when we're not obedient, we lose the vision of life. We lose understanding what God is doing. And our trust in him being our defense becomes lacking because we haven't obeyed to the point that we're called to. Verse 14, behold, he travails with wickedness. He conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He's dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen to the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own plate. One of the commentaries summed this up. No juster law can be devised or made than that sinners' agents fall by their own trade. Galatians says, God is not mocked. What a man sows, that will he reap. Matthew Henry closes this section saying, they prepare destruction for themselves by preparing themselves for destruction, submitting themselves to their own corruptions. This is the world we're in. It is preparing itself for destruction. We are called to rage against that to desperately seek that those around us find submission to God, that they find repentant hearts, that the Spirit change them into something new. David ends the section saying, I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteous I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, Most High. As we learn to trust God, as we turn over all these situations to him, our response should be this. It should bring us to thankfulness that we're not the ones in control because we can really mess it up. And he is in control. And that's a wonderful thing. And we can praise him. 
because he's going to do what he said. He's already done and proven himself. He's fulfilled all kinds of prophecy and told us what he was going to do, and he did it, and he continues to tell us, I have a plan. Wait and entrust yourself to me. My timing is perfect. Just trust me. Let me be your shield. We need to understand God's justice and mercy. And as we do, we have that reasoning to be thankful, to praise God. He is the Lord Most High, the God that has made a new covenant with us, that loves us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are in control. We thank you that this world is not our home. And you have gone to prepare a place for us that we may be with you. And I pray that as we're here, that we would be faithful to you, to your call, and that we would be your voice and your image on this world. I praise you this morning. You are God. Thank you for all you have in store. In Jesus' name, amen.